0: So if you're joining with us for the first time this morning, we began a new series last week in the book of Ecclesiastes. And what we said last week is that this book is a very relevant book. In some ways, it's a very modern book because it addresses one of the peculiar problems we face living in a secular age. You know, we live in this frenetic, this busy, this consumer-oriented culture, shop, 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 and buy, 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 and work, 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 and traffic, 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 and then do it again the next day. And I think a lot of us find ourselves asking that question, what's it all about anyway? What's the purpose? What's the point of life anyway? One uh, scholar put it like this, he said that that we we live in an age that is suffering from a mystery and a meaning deficit. And I wonder if you ever find yourself kind of wrestling with a mystery and a meaning deficit. Well, this book was actually addressed to, to a group of people to help them kind of think through what's the point of life anyway, and how do you live well in the midst of a world that sometimes feels like it lacks mystery and meaning? Now, this book, Ecclesiastes, uh, the word Ecclesiastes is a transliteration of a Greek word, which is Ecclesiastes, and it's actually uh, drawn from the Hebrew word. It's a translation of a Hebrew word called Koheleth. And that's significant because that word koheleth is found all throughout this book. It is the self-identification of the wisdom teacher in this book. He keeps referring to him. He says, I, the preacher, is how it's translated in my Bible. But in Hebrew, it's I, koheleth. And that word koheleth means somebody who gathers together together. And it might be somebody who gathers together a collection of wise sayings. It may be somebody who gathers together people. I think it's probably best for us to think of it in both senses. This is a guy who's collected together a bunch of wise sayings on life, and he's convened us together so that we might learn the way of wisdom. Now, one of the interesting things about this book in particular is that it's almost certainly addressed to a middle to upper class group of people. And this is significant because almost all the books of the Bible are written to people on the margins, oftentimes the poor, those who are powerless, but this book, almost everyone says, was almost certainly written to a group of people who had abundance, they had means, and oftentimes when you have time, when you have abundance, you have time to think about some of the big issues of life. And that's what this guy's is doing is he's thinking about the big issues of life and he's helping us process together about life. And we said last week that the big verdict that this guy renders over life is, uh, in the Hebrew, it's the word hevel. Can we all say that together? Hevel. And his point is, is that life is hevel, and that word is a, it's a metaphor meaning vapor. It's fleeting. And this morning, what we want to do is we want to drill down a little bit deeper into this idea that life is fleeting. And today, I want to talk to you about death. Welcome to church. Story is told of two brothers, Cliff and Bill. And they were massive baseball fans. They loved baseball. And for almost their whole life, they had this ongoing debate over whether or not there was gonna be baseball in heaven. And as they approached you know, their waning years of life, Bill got sick and he made a promise to Cliff. He said, look, he said, if I die soon, he said, I'm gonna come back to you in a dream and I will tell you whether or not there's baseball in heaven. Well, sadly, the next day Bill died uh, but the day after that, he actually came back to Cliff in a dream as a ghost. This is a true story, you can tell. And um, he, said, he said, Bill, or he said, Cliff, he says, I have, great, I have good news and I have bad news. He said, the good news is that there is baseball in heaven. The bad news is, is that you're pitching on Friday nights. <laughs> and this is the bad news, is that all of us will be pitching on Friday nights. The stats on death are impressive. None of us get out of here alive. Woody Allen once quipped, I'm not afraid of death. I just don't want to be there when it happens. In another place, uh, he was asked in in an interview, because, you know, he's getting older. uh, He was asked his opinion of death, and he responded curtly, I'm strongly against it. But no one wants to die. I mean, even people who want to go to heaven don't want to have to die to get there. And it's kind of ironic because death is the most universal, the most obvious fact of human existence. And yet, we don't want to talk about it. We don't like to think about it. It's the last great taboo in American society. You know, it used to be that the unmentionable topic around dinner tables was sex. But today, it's almost like the new taboo is discussion about death. Years ago, Ernst Becker wrote a Pulitzer Prize-winning book entitled The Denial of Death, and he really explores the reality that for most of us, we want to ignore, we want to get away from thinking about death. And in the book, he puts it like this. He said, modern man is drinking and drugging himself out of awareness, or he spends his time shopping, which is the same thing. And we could probably add to that, he spends his time playing video games and binging Netflix and watching YouTube clips and staring at the iPhone. Or, uh, you know, like Billy Joel, you know, let's have another drink and forget about life for a while. And a lot of us, you know, we want to push this out of our minds. But what I want you to be convinced of this morning is that that is a mistake. Because one of the most important tools to teach us how to live well is a cognizance, it's an awareness of our own mortality, of our own death. In a brilliant commencement speech uh, delivered after he recently received news that he had terminal cancer, uh, Steve Jobs put it like this to a group of graduating college students. He He said, remembering that I will be dead soon is the most important tool I've ever encountered to help me make the big choices in life. Almost everything, all external expectations, all pride, all fear of embarrassment or failure, these things just fall away in the face of death, leaving only what's truly important. And I think Koheleth, the author of this book, would agree. In Ecclesiastes 7.3, he put it like this. He said, it's better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. He says, "It's better to be at a memorial service than it is to go to a party. Why? Because death is the end of all mankind, and the living should take this to heart. A little bit later, he says that the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. It's almost as if he's saying us. He's saying, "Look, you learn wisdom when you confront your own mortality." And so this morning, I want you to see in this book that he doesn't talk to us about death to make us depressed or to scare us. Rather, he wants us to know how to live well. And he's convinced that death reminds us of three very important things that will help us live well. And I want us to explore each one of these three reminders that death brings to us this morning. And the first is this. He gives it to us in uh, Ecclesiastes 3, verse 18. Death first reminds us what we are. And look how the author puts it in verse 18 of chapter 3. He said, "I, I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them to see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and all return to the dust. He says, death is God's reminder for us of what we are. And what are we, according to this text? He says, God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. Beasts. Now, that word beast could be an insult. As in, a little brother pulls uh, his big sister's pigtails and she looks at him and she says, You beast! It could also be a compliment. As in, when I'm doing a core workout with my wife and, and I'm just feeling absolutely winded and I look over at her and I'm just like, You're a beast! And what am I saying? I'm saying, You're awesome. I can't keep up with you. You're so strong, you know? You're a beast. But this is neither an insult nor a compliment, instead it's a statement, a fact. When he uses the word beast, he's talking about our nature as creatures, as that which is created. You know, philosophers have asked, you know, throughout history, what is it that makes men different from animals? And some have said perhaps it's consciousness, Uh, others it's ethics. Uh, some, perhaps, it's, uh, it, it's, it's, our, um, it's self-awareness. But according to the Bible, what, the, the thing that, that makes the difference between people and animals is that human beings are uniquely created in the image of God. And that's what makes us different. And yet, what the author wants us to see here is that we are also the same as beasts in at least three ways, Number one, he says, we're all from dust. Look how he puts it back in verse 20. He says, all go to one place. All are from the dust. Now here he's referencing in a very well-known place in Genesis 2 uh, where God creates all of the beasts of the field, all of the animals, all the birds, from the dust of the ground. And just prior to God creating the, the, the animals from the dust of the ground, he also creates the human creature from the dust of the ground. And then he breathes into his nostrils God's life-giving breath and the man becomes a living being. But here's the point in this text, you're dust not because you're a sinner, you are dust suspended by the breath of God because you are human. In fact, the Hebrew word actually makes this connection even tighter because uh, the word in Hebrew for man is Adam, and then the word for dirt is Adama, and so it's from the same word, and it's essentially connecting humanity with the dirt from which they came. You know, sometimes Christians express dismay over the idea that we share common ancestors with the chimpanzee, that it's an offense to our dignity as human beings. But I just wanna point out here that in the Bible, it's even more offensive. Our original ancestor is not an ape, it is the dirt on which the ape stood. And he says, in this we share a common history with the beast, we are all dust, ultimately. Now, of course, Adam is not just dust. He's not just molded inanimate clay. He is breathed into dust by the wind of God. He is dust and we are dust suspended. Suspended by the life-giving, merciful, creative power of God. By his breath and his power, we hold together every minute of every day. The animals, the universe, your life, my life are all upheld by the power and by the life of God of God. And so we're all from dust. But we're, we, we are also, not only are we all from dust, but we, along with all the beasts, we all have the same breath. And look at what he says back in verse 19. He says, they all have the same breath. And I think what he's speaking of here is, is he's talking about our, our contingent, dependent nature in order to live, we need air. In order for you guys to get to the end of the service, you need something outside of yourselves, air. Now, a lot of us don't, we we rarely think about this. I rarely think about this. But there have been moments in my life as a surfer where I have become acutely aware of my need for air. I have a, a memory of being in Hawaii and sitting uh, way, you paddle way outside of these outside reefs when you're surfing in Hawaii and being way in out there. And, and typically what happens is, is there are these big bomb sets that come in way on the outside and the, the big Hawaiians and their big boards, they're, they're just owning those waves. And so you can't have anything to do with them. And so I sit further in and I just kind of take the leftovers. And that's usually a good strategy, except except when a huge wave comes outside, and I have this memory of seeing this big wave come outside and I just start scratching to get out there as quick as I can, as quick as I can. You're trying to get out there so you can get over the wave, but I didn't make it and the wave just came and it just, it just exploded right on top of me, this huge wave. And the thing just, you just get like, you're in an explosion and then a washing machine and then you get pinned down on the bottom of the water and the thing you're thinking is air. I need air. And you're just desperate to try to get up there. You know, people talk about the three laws of, or the three kind of like uh, needs of human beings. Uh, 30 days without food and you die. Three days without water and you die. Three minutes without air and you die. Do you realize how dependent and how contingent you are? Now, this might go without saying, but God is not like human beings in this way. God doesn't need air. God doesn't need air. In fact, in the Old Testament, one of the metaphors that's used to describe the presence of God as he interacts with creation is breath, it's wind, it's, uh, in the Hebrew, it's ruach. And it's, 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 it's as if we're being told that God and human beings are exactly different in this. Human beings are dependent and contingent but God is that thing upon which human beings in all creation are dependent and contingent. He is that life without which we die. But God is not contingent. God is dependent upon no one. God is self-generating and self-existing and self-governing. God is self-generating. God is an infinite ocean of eternality. He has no beginning and no end. But you and I have a beginning and an end, and we are incredibly dependent. And he says, "In this, we are like the rest of creation. We are dependent. And so we all have the same breath. We're all from the same dust. And then thirdly, we all go to the same place. And again, this is what he says back in verse uh, uh, 18. He says, what happens to the beasts is the same as what happens to man. As one dies, so dies the other. In other words, you have a beginning and you have an end. But God has no beginning and God has no end. Now, I go through all of this simply to point out this. We as human beings, as creatures, are entirely, completely needy. Do you see that? At every moment of every day, we take in energy from the sun and we have to take in oxygen from the air and we have to take in food and water, not to mention other things like friendship and spouses and jobs. We are the most needy things in the universe. If we don't take in something from outside of us, we die. We are suspended dust, we are breathed into dust and we have to take in elements from the outside in order to sustain our life. And this is what death teaches us. And this is important because some of us can become deluded. Some of us can become deluded. I can. Uh, there was. A, I had a friend back in Albuquerque whose birthday was on December twenty fifth, and it was great for jokes because we could always say, "Oh, that's why you have such a messianic complex," you know, because you were born on uh, Christmas, you know, and this sort of thing. But of course, you don't have to be born on December 25th to have a messianic complex, do you? You don't have to be born on December 25th to think sometimes that this world revolves around you, that this is your world and we are in it. And you're always frustrated and you're angry because stuff isn't working out for you and this is my world and you're in it and why isn't this working out for me? You are not God. You are not the creator there is only one who is self-existent, self-generating, self-governing, self-ruling, self-everything. And it ain't you and it ain't me. It is God and God alone. And so a recognition of this, and that it, it invites us to live life well with our fellow creatures by having compassion and knowing like, you are surrounded by finite, limited, contingent people who are but dust, and so are you. And to live with fear and with humility before the face of the creator in whose hand our life is held together. And so number one, death reminds us of what we are, but number two, I want you to see that, the the author goes further, he says, he also wants us to see that death not only reminds us of what we are, But death reminds us to enjoy life now. Turn with me over to Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 3. Ecclesiastes 9, verse 3. This has got to be one of the most morbid, depressing passages in the entire book. Let's look at it together. Verse 3. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun. That the same event happens to all. And of course, he's talking about death. That's the event that happens to all. And also, get this, he says, the hearts of the children of men are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. He was just having a bad day, wasn't he? He says, but he was joined with all the living has hope for a living dog is better than a dead lion. He says, all things being equal, it's better to be alive than dead for the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing and they have no more reward. For the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished. And forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. So this is one of the most palpable graphic depictions of the end of human life that we have in the entire Bible. But I want you to see that what follows right on the heels of it, on this very depressing text, is an exhortation to joy. Because look at what it says in verse 7. He says, go, eat your bread, enjoy. Drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved of what you do. Let your garments always be white. Let oil not be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life, in your toil and and in the toil that you toil with, with under the sun. And whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. This is uh, one of what uh, scholars have, have, have referred to as the Carpe Diem text in this book. And it's basically a call that in light of death, we need to take hold of life now. And specifically, we need to find joy in life now. He says, recognize what you have in your life. And he gives us this list of things to enjoy. He says, enjoy, enjoy food and drink. He says, a good meal, a great glass of wine. He says, enjoy a nice outfit. He talks about wearing clothes that are shining bright white, which in the ancient Near Eastern hot sun, you know, bright clothing was a good thing. You didn't want to get it all dingy and dirty. I guess you could if you didn't really care. But he says, no, look good. (laughs) Put on, you know, some oil on your face. And then he says, and find joy in your relationships with the people that God has given you. With the wife, with the husband, with your children, with your parents, with your neighbors. Find joy with the wife you love, he says. Find joy in your relationships. And then he says, and find joy in your work. I mean, think about the, the great, work that God has given you to do, you, you have work ahead of you. you there's your, your vocation and that's great work to do. And, and there's service that you can pour your, your, your blood set and tears into serving the needs of the poor and working for justice and, and helping people who are in need. And, and pour your life out, he says. expend your energy while you have it because you won't always. Some of you know this. You won't always have the people around you you have right now. You won't always have energy to do the work that God has given you to do. You won't always have senses to enjoy the food and the drink that God has given you to enjoy. You won't always have the ability to put on a nice outfit and go outside. He says, so, so seize the moment. Now don't misunderstand him. This is not an exhortation to unfettered hedonism. In the context of this book, it is enjoying life within the boundaries of God's commandment and under the fear of God. I mean, this author knows what many of us have come to figure out, that if you do give your life to unfettered hedonism and just living for self and indulging in self and never giving away or opening up your life or your home or expending your energy for others, your life is gonna feel hevel. It's gonna feel vapor and meaningless. But he says, instead, find joy in the work that God has given you. Find joy in your relationships. And listen, some of us need to hear this. Some of you, you're not living in the present. You're still living in the past. You obsess over past grievances and hurts, and you go to bed at night nursing those old bitternesses and angers, and that is what's eating with you, and you can't enter in joyfully into the present because you're still trapped in the past. Some of us are like Luke Skywalker and we're always living into the future. And we need to hear the word of Yoda to Luke Skywalker to many of you. Remember what he said? All his life he looked away to the future, to the to the horizon. <laughs> Never his mind on where he was, <laughs> <laughs> what he was doing. But you Never his mind on where he was, always thinking out into the future of the next thing that's gonna happen. I know it's finally gonna work out for me. We're finally gonna get there. What about what's around you now? Your kids need you now. Your wife needs you now. Your husband needs you now. Your neighbors need you now. People around you need you now. Put down your iPhones, turn off the TV, stop obsessing in life over stuff that doesn't matter. And he says, invest while you still have breath, while you still have life, because it's short. And it's cliche, but it's true. Nobody on their deathbed ever looks back at their life and says, I wish I had put in more hours at the office. I wish I had spent a few more, se- I, w- I wish I would have binged watched a few more seasons of Netflix. Darn, I'm dying now. I wish I would have spent more time uselessly surfing the internet and looking at my phone. But what does everyone say? They say, I wish I would've made my relationships right. I wish I would've spent more time with the people that I love. I wish I would've said sorry more often. I wish I would've actually volunteered and served while I still had strength in my body because now it's going and I can't do it and I've wasted my life on self-centered projects. Don't waste your life. Put down your phone. Turn off the TV. You're going to die. Spend time with your kids. Spend time with... Do this. You're going to die. This is what he's saying. So he says, death, it reminds us what we are. We are creatures, suspended dust, dependent and needy people. Life is a gift from God's hand, so receive it as a gift. And he says, death reminds us to make the most of life now. But how do we make the most of life now when it seems like now is just full of hardship? My relationships are are rough right now and my work stinks right now. I just want to get past right now. I can't find joy in right now. And what's interesting is that in this letter, it's interesting, he takes the same thing, his toil, and he renders two different verdicts on it. One verdict on his toil is that it's wearisome and I hate my life. The other verdict on his toil is that it was a gift from God for him to enjoy. The same thing, but two different perspectives. And listen, you can have the same person in your life, the same job before you, the same opportunities in front of you, and your attitude makes all the difference if what you're doing is you're primarily seeing what's not and what's missing and you're upset about it and you're bitter about it, you will live life miserably. And I just, some of you in here need to hear this. You need to stop it. You need to wake up. You are always agonizing over what's not and you are failing to receive what you have as a gift from God and to rejoice in what is. And this is his exhortation to us. Death reminds us to enjoy life now. So death reminds us what we are. It reminds us to enjoy life now. But thirdly and finally, death reminds us to look beyond death. Now, turn with me back to Ecclesiastes 3. This is... (laughs) I think this is pretty interesting. So... In Ecclesiastes 3 and verses 16 down to verse 22, Koheleth is musing on death. And it's interesting because look at how ambivalent and kind of hopeless he is as he thinks about life after death. He talks about the death of the animals, the death of people. They all go to the same place. All are from dust. All return to death. And then look what he says in verse 21. And who knows? Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. And he has some ambivalence. It's as if he looks past death and he's just looking into this great fog of unknowing. And I think those of us who, who read this text now with the final completion of the Bible, you know, we look back on this and we think, well, what, what gives? Didn't he know about life after death? And what Bible scholars, what theologians talk about is that God's revelation is progressive. And what that means is that God didn't reveal everything there was to know about himself and his plan for the world all in one wham, bam, thank you, ma'am, here you go, it's all one completed thing. Rather, God slowly and over a long period of hundreds of years began to reveal more of who he was and his plan for the world to his people. And he's revealing to them more and more, and they're getting a fuller and fuller picture. And so there's these portions in the Old Testament where they just are, are looking into this big fog of unknowing, and they don't know what's happening after death. But there are these points in the Old Testament where it's almost like there's this beam of light that shoots through the fog, and these rays of hope break in through the cloud of unknowing, from the, from the words of some of the most visionary prophets. And so one of those is uh, Isaiah chapter 25, and I just want to show you what this one says. So in the midst of, you know, the Old Testament people, there's some unknowing, there's some wondering what's going to happen, and then this word breaks through the clouds from God. And it's this incredible, powerful word of hope. And it says that in the end, God's going to throw this big party on a mountain, And then it says, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all the nations. And that covering, that veil that he was referring to is the shroud of death. And he's saying that the day is coming when God himself is going to remove the shroud of death. He is going to take away, and he himself will swallow it up. He will ingest it, he says. And he will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. You know, in the Old Testament, there was a lot of things that could make a person unclean. And if you just touched certain things, you could become ritually unclean, you would become unpure, you couldn't approach God in the temple, you had to go through all this kind of like uh, rituals of purity and stuff to make yourself right again. But one of the the most common causes of becoming unclean was when you touched something that was dead. Now, to go beyond touching something that was dead, it was actually what, what God is talking about here Is is touching death, but actually doing more than that. He's talking about ingesting death into his very life and thereby destroying death forever. And the people of Israel must have wondered, what? Like, what are you how is that gonna happen? How is the 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 infinite ocean of life The one who is self-generating, self-existing, self-ruling, self-governing, self-everythinging, how is he going to take death into his life? How is he going to ingest it? I mean, that stuff is unclean. God is repulsed by death. What do you mean he's gonna take it into himself and swallow it up forever? And then in John chapter one, It says that the eternal God, the eternal word of God, the self-generating, self-existing, that infinite ocean of being and existence and life became flesh, entered into humanity and became mortal and finite and killable. And he enters into our humanity and ultimately he enters into death And in the cross of Jesus Christ, the eternal, self-existing, infinite ocean of life, God himself takes death into his own life so that God might shatter the power of death forever. And on Friday, when Christ was on the cross and he cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he gave up his last. It looked like death had won. And then all day Saturday, when his body was placed in that tomb, the cold, dark tomb, it looked like death had won. But early on Sunday morning, that self-generating, life-giving, infinite sea of existence burst forth from the tomb in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and God exerted his victory over sin and death, and God has swallowed up death forever, so that the New Testament authors cry out, death, where is your sting? Hell, where is your victory? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.